welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Imagine discovering something from the past and seeing it anew with fresh, insightful perspective. That's what this episode is all about. A previously released interview from the past that carried previously unnoticed information which sheds light on some of the most courageous, selfless amongst us. People who, it turns out, need compassion and care just like anyone else, EMTs and first responders. In this special episode, we have the privilege of revisiting what it takes to be a first responder with Rich Holzman, EMT, firefighter, coach, commander, and transformative human being. And we have the privilege of seeing from the inside out a more tender view of EMTs and first responders. The weight of life-saving responsibilities for first responders and EMTs extends far beyond the immediate rescue efforts. First responders are people just like you and I. The nature of their work can affect their physical well-being. The irregular and often long working hours coupled with the physical demands of the rescues themselves can also affect their mental health well-being, can lead to exhaustion, sleep disturbances, and injuries. Balancing work demands with personal life and self-care becomes an intricate dance, often with sacrifices being made for the greater good of the community they serve. Saving lives is not just a job. It's a deeply ingrained calling driven by a sense of duty to save human life. With the relentless demands of their profession comes an often overlooked challenge, the impact of secondary trauma, and their living with the ongoing uncertainty of the outcomes of their life-saving interventions. Stay tuned. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma 
for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. You may have listened in to the bonus episodes between seasons, one of which is a montage of the courageous Beach Patrol emergency responders who are part of lifting our son Archer off the beach after his catastrophic injury in the ocean, rendering him paralyzed from his neck and shoulders on down. I needed to know what happened to piece it together as part of my trauma healing journey. I was also curious back then to speak with someone who regularly witnesses catastrophic accidents and traumatic events to further explore and understand what happens behind the scenes. And I interviewed Rich Holzman in season three. Rich, the retired assistant chief of the Montgomery County, Maryland Fire Department, one of the larger urban fire departments in the United States, where he served for 25 years, shed more light on the intricate and highly coordinated systems of rescue efforts in the United States. I wanted to revisit this conversation now, almost a year later, through a trauma-informed healing lens, to listen in for the understory or parallel personal experience of EMTs and firefighters and other first responders. As we listen now with compassion to the impact of the intensity of a first responder job on the first responder. In this conversation today, which you're about to hear, Rich lays out exactly what goes into responding to an emergency and all the people who have to collaborate to make the most of each fleeting second following a 911 call. I know you will come away with a deeper understanding of the emergency response systems 
we have in place across the United States at the local level where injuries and traumatic accidents occur and what goes into a rapid response team working together to respond to a crisis, which might someday be your rapid response team or the rapid response team for someone you love. The interview also reveals the trauma healing needs of first responders. And the conversation prompted me to opine on our relational understanding about trauma and trauma healing and how we might support in relational ways those who are selflessly choosing to make careers out of stepping in to save and rescue us when in peril. As we're learning together at the end of the episode, I have an invitation I'm extending to you to consider for your own life. Here we go. We have this unique opportunity to really explore what happens in a catastrophic accident from you and what happens behind the scenes with the emergency medical services and in the context even of of Archer with spinal cord injury and and while his spinal cord injury happened in New Jersey and and you are here in Maryland um, I'm really looking forward to understanding more about your background in EMS and then with the fire department and then if you could walk us through what what it really looks like behind the scenes what what so many of us will never know or or see when you become a firefighter or, you know, especially in Montgomery County, Maryland, not only are you responsible for being a firefighter, but you're also responsible for being at least an EMT or possibly as a paramedic. So I was a paramedic and a firefighter and did my career. I had started my EMS career actually up in New York before moving down this way. I was never expecting this to be my full-time career. It was something that I started on the side, you know, volunteering in Westchester County. And then it just grew from there. and. Went to college for computer engineering, you know, and really thought that was going to be my path. I was going to be the white shirt, gray suit, yellow tie, IBM kind of guy. And the EMS world just kept bringing me in and bringing me in. And it was that chance to, it was the diversity of the experiences. It was that chance to help, to try to make a difference. It was the camaraderie and everything that came with it. And the more that I was doing that, the harder it was to think about doing anything else. Mm, so you really and kind of got a bug. I did. And I was very fortunate that in, you know, moving down here, because I took an educational leave from one place to go to another and thought, well, I'd eventually find my way and put in some applications while I was in Maryland. And next thing you know, here I am working for Montgomery County and got into the county at the right time where the county was just growing and expanding the fire rescue service. So the experiences that I had there were just phenomenal. And there wasn't a day that went by throughout even all the frustrations of whatever was going on in the business of the fire department or, you know, those busy days where you're running 20 calls a day or something that I ever felt like I was in the wrong career. I was in the wrong profession. And so no matter what, I felt great doing what I was doing. And I felt like, you know, I was very lucky to be able to say that I felt good going to work every day. Mm, yes, it's such a blessing, isn't it? I, I won't digress too much, but I, I've known for 30 years now when I left uh, the litigation world and started the 
Baltimore Mediation that I was like born to be a mediator and I have been happy every single day doing that work. It's really been just, yeah, make, makes, makes my heart sing. It's hard. <laughs> just like your job, I'm sure is hard. And let's talk about that, but how, what a true blessing it can be because sometimes you have to leave, as you said, the gray suit and the yellow tie and the and envisionment that you may have had for yourself uh, behind. And I certainly left uh, a lot of that behind too. I, I knew I'd be managing partner. I, I suspected of my large firm someday, but that's not what, what was calling my heart. <laughs> no, and that makes a difference. And it's hard, you know, sometimes it's difficult to make that choice of following your passion and having that confidence to do it versus from an income perspective or otherwise, it's, it's a risk. It is a risk. In fact, I think oftentimes following one's heart, people generally and children and young adults and then adults might not get the full emotional and mental support from those around them because it looks like it's going to be a step down, you know, like they're not going to make the same amount of money that they could have made had they been something else. Uh, But somehow it all seems to work out when when you do follow what makes you happy. There's enough. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering when you reference EMS, could you share with us how the, it's not an acronym, but how the letters EMS are actually used? Because, you know, we hear people saying EMS, and I think of it as as emergency medical services, but what does that actually mean and entail? So that encompasses all of your first response and your transport from the scene to the hospital. So it involves also all of your training. So you've got your, you know, EMS as a collective would involve your recruiting, your hiring, your training, your recertifications, all of your equipment, all of your apparatus, making sure that you've got the dispatch capabilities, that you have the resource, the right resources going to the call, whether that's going to be by boat, by air, by ambulance, by car, by fire truck. You know, that's all part of that EMS system. And then what we're finding is, is that as the EMS system has evolved, it not only involves that acute response, but they're also expanding into dealing with what would have otherwise been some more mental health responses. You're seeing systems evolve into managing more senior care, elder care, or those patients that would otherwise be those frequent flyers, the ones that don't have full access to help every day. But, you know, you still need to provide that system. So then it's trying to make sure you get on the scene and you're bringing either mental health providers with you or some systems are using uh, patient care advocates and those things so that they can get the right resources to the people. That broad umbrella of what EMS encompasses, and you mentioned before how you had had paramedic training or you you needed to be a paramedic or, or another profession. Does EMS include a number of different professions or is there a specific track of training for an EMS worker in addition to what one might choose in another profession? So there's a additional track and that track involves going through first an EMT basic training. And that's usually about 120 to 160 hours of training. And that includes clinical writing time as well as skill performance, skill evaluation, in classroom work. And then to get to the paramedic level, that's a full year of training. So that involves classroom training, that involves time in 
labor and delivery. It involves time in the ER, time down at the Morgan and Cadaver Lab, time in the ER, time in the OR, so that you're getting that full breadth of experience and that your skills are at a higher level, skill level, what you're doing for medication, for innovation, for IV access. And so that level, and then you're required to perform continuing ed on a regular basis and maintain other certifications such as, you know, pre-hospital trauma life support, advanced hospital trauma life support, pediatric advanced life support, advanced cardiac life support, in addition to regular ongoing continuing education. Hmm. So are those other advanced courses actual certifications that a paramedic would add on to his or her Mm -hmm. basic training? Yeah, so you would start with getting your... um, Let's say you're going for your paramedic, you start as an EMT, and then you have a certain amount of time then to of experience needed to go be a paramedic. And then you go into your paramedic training. Um, At the same time you're doing that, you're probably still working and you're going to class and learning and doing your clinicals and completing all of your observations. And then once you've completed that, then you go through a, there's a national registry of national registry EMT slash paramedic, which then becomes that national body that tests you and certifies you. So you complete that test, but that allows you to then have that certificate and validation of your education. Then within Maryland, you take your Maryland certification, you're affiliated with a department or an organization, and then there's a clinical physician associated with that county or that agency that then signs off and says, yes, you are able to practice as a paramedic in the state of Maryland. And then it's a state licensure. So then there's a state licensure. Thinking about spinal cord injury in particular, how many spinal cord injury calls might full-time paramedic or someone working in a fire department receive in a year? Well, the hard part with the spinal cord injuries is always the suspicion of a spinal cord injury. So you could have that automobile accident, you could have the fall, you could have the the gunshot, you know, into the main torso area. You could have a stabbing, um, any sort of a bicycle accident, a swimming pool accident, any of those could lead to that suspicion of. And so you're always trying to make sure that you minimize any potential risk of other damage. You know, you're trying to do no further harm and actually just trying to make sure that you're ideally stabilizing and improving from when you get the call. And so you're really trying to, on the true spinal cord injuries where you have that get on the scene and there's a paralysis or something to truly indicate that injury is there, those are probably a small percentage. The hardest part is, is you're really working on the um, prevention of that injury based on the mechanism of trauma. Right, because the mechanism of trauma, if I'm tracking you correctly, would be how a body is physically moved that could then create some damage. Is that the reference? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. The courage I think it takes to be in the EMS field, knowing the potential damage that could be created, but the life that's being saved is really remarkable to me. Oh, it is. And, you know, the biggest challenge that we all have as EMS providers is time. And so, you know, if we think about the archer's event, you know, archer's in and swimming, 
and Archer's at that moment just enjoying himself, and he's you know one of possibly you know a group of people that's in the water at that moment. Archer then has his event, and then it takes now. So that clock starts ticking at that moment. Then it takes that recognition of a lifeguard to realize, hey, somebody's in trouble, or somebody else around Archer to indicate, hey, he's in trouble. Um, and then you're dealing with that now notification call for resources, probably by radio or whistle or other stuff. And then somebody else may be making that next call to get to the lifeguard or start calling 911 at some point. Now they've got to get down that chair, get down into the water to go get him, get to him, and then be able to manage against the waves, against that tide, to be able to pull him out and then get him up on shore and start that assessment as other people are starting to then come in. And then while that's going, it all depends on then from the 911 perspective, when was that call made? And how quickly, you know, does that call get processed? On average, it takes about a minute to process a 911 call. So from the time you pick up the phone and call 911, depending on volume at that moment, on average, you're about a minute from being able to determine what the call is and then be able to get resources started. They may still keep you on the call, gathering more information, but they've already queued it off to get dispatched. And then it gets queued into the dispatch and then while we're at the firehouse waiting for a call, it takes could take a minute to get out the door, depending on where everybody is in the station, what's going on at that moment. And and you're speaking about a full, like an actual 60-second minute yeah. because yeah, of the drills so, that you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, getting out the door in 60 seconds is a pretty good time. You know, most people are, you know, at best, I know we've done 35 and 40-second responses. But that's everybody in the right place at the right time being able to get on that unit with the appropriate level of gear on that you need. You know, sit down, seatbelts on, door opens up, and you head out the door. And then you have the travel time. You know, so in the meantime, this is all working in that background. And then, you know, in Archer's case, that clock started way back here. And so, you know, that's minutes ticking. So from the time of Archer's event to the time somebody shows up on the scene, you know, you could be eight minutes, 10 minutes is probably not a bad response time from where that station is to where the scene was to you know, being able to have that extra help and manpower and staffing um, and expert skill level expertise to be able to provide greater assistance. This idea that when a 911 call is made, it's about one minute. Um, is that nationwide? It can be longer at times. Sometimes it could be faster. That's about the the goal is trying to really manage that 911 call in about a minute to get resources started. So we might be still talking. I might be gathering more information as to what's going on. But in the meantime, I have enough information to say that this is a, a drowning at the beach. And that gets typed in as a call type. That goes to the dispatcher. Then the dispatcher goes ahead and and the appropriate units that are available. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of what it looks like from a prioritization of care. How is that then determined? Because um, does it change? Well, you'll end up with, um, you know, your heart attacks, your not breathing, cardiac arrest, drowning, um, severe traumas, and those things, those are your higher priority calls. You know, a building fire versus alarm bells going off as a higher priority call. And so as they go into that queue, 
they'll drop hot, you know, they'll go into that front of that line to be dispatched. Depending on the call, they'll divert. I mean, if they need to divert a unit off of another call, hey, we need to take you off of this, you need to go to this. It's you extraordinary. Know, Is all that done on like a telephone triage system when you speak of like the higher priority of the call? Well, how does that, how is that managed? How, what does that look like? How does that work? So that's based on that human interaction. So that's based on the information that's coming in and what that dispatcher is gathering in the, the information from the caller. So the more specific a caller can be, the better it is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody would have just have said, you know, Archer was just an injured person in the water, that would be a lower level priority dispatch because you're not thinking severe trauma. You're thinking that somebody might have an ankle injury, might have a shoulder injury, might have a scrape or a bruise as opposed to somebody that was a drowning or a spinal cord injury or some sort of traumatic event. And so that specificity within the 911 call allows for the right resources to be dispatched from the beginning, mm. at least to get the right resources started. It's a really a wonderful learning point for any of us as lay people, as citizens of the United States about what good citizens we can be to make that call as fast as possible, even if we think somebody else has made it, and with specificity. And it's also that willingness to make the call. You know, that's the other thing that concerns me now is I watched everybody taking their phones and just wanting to do that. Oh, take a picture. Be recording or taking pictures and those things as opposed to somebody thinking, hey, do I need to make the call? Make the call. And so that's where I get concerned now is, is everybody's looking for those video moments or those picture moments and recording is, how are we making sure the right calls are occurring at the same time? Mm, that is a, a serious concern, sort of the voyeurism or just even the documentation, if you will, as opposed to the action that is required to actually save a life. I've learned with our nonprofit, Blink of an Eye Services, learning as we go a whole lot that the military call the time of injury with a catastrophic injury, the golden hour. Mm -hmm. And that in spinal cord injury, the golden hour is about 15 hours with regard to really making sure that the spinal cord injured person gets to the right place, even though the first moments are so critical, especially if there are lung issues. So well, that would be the key thing with what you described with Archer is, is that if he was drowning and had drowned, then your first focus is always going to be on that, you know, that airway and that breathing and circulation. You're trying to make sure that you're managing those critical components that are going to keep somebody alive. That's right. That's right. You might not ever get into, into the 15 hours if you can't even keep someone alive. Yeah. You might not ever get to treating the spinal cord injury um, if you can't treat the lungs and, and uh, remove the blockages in the airways. Where does the fire department come in on these EMS calls? So many of the EMS systems are fire department based. In Montgomery County, we provided all of the fire and EMS response. So we were doing fire, the first response for EMS as well as all of the transport as well. So whether it was a basic life support transport or advanced life support transport or a paramedic engine response, we were providing all of that first level response as well as transport. So whom are you communicating with once the call is received by you? Is, it, um, is there any medical communication 
at that point? So from a um, communication perspective, it starts off, we have a public safety communication center in Montgomery County that takes screens all of the calls for both fire and police. So if a call comes in, the first question usually they ask is, you know, fire or police. And then um, they'll assign that out to the next level dispatcher. So it'll go from that initial call taker to the right branch that it needs to go through. Then you're dispatched out on the call. Now, within the medical world, we all have standing protocols that we have to operate within. So there's standards of care. So that allows me to go through a whole treatment plan prior to contacting a hospital. Now, once we're on the scene, we have full access to um, being able to communicate with both the closest ER, the closest trauma center, or the closest specialty center. So if we're on the scene and it's a, um, a trauma patient, we can communicate with one of the local trauma centers in Montgomery County, or we can communicate with either Washington Hospital Center at the time or shock trauma up at University of Maryland. If it was a pediatric call, we could communicate with Johns Hopkins or Children's Hospital in D.C. Is it like a like a hotline that only the fire department has, or is it a telephone line that anyone like I would also be able to access? Actually, it's, it's a statewide um, system that we patch through through a radio system. So we actually communicate with a uh, medical dispatcher at that point, who will then patch us into the appropriate hospital to be able to communicate with us. And how do you choose the, the appropriate hospital? Based on what the criteria is as far as what's going on with the patient. So really trying to make sure you're getting that patient to the best location for the best care for the best survivability. Yeah. Well, the yeah, first right. goal is always how do we get to the, the best care center to make sure we can get the stabilization occurred so that we can make sure that if we know this is going to be somebody that's going to have to go from us to one hospital, then on to another specialty center, we've still got to make sure that we get them stabilized for all of that level of transport. You make the decisions on the scene of, can we get to that specialty center by air? So in Maryland, we're able to use the Maryland State Police. They have a phenomenal air system that allows you to transport patients all throughout the state to all the appropriate centers and down into D.C. as needed. Johns Hopkins has a helicopter system as well to be able to provide assistance. In Northern Virginia, there's a, you know, Fairfax, I know, but has helicopter systems. Children's Hospital has a helicopter. So you're able to get people to the resources that are the best within the state. And all of that still assumes a basis of both time and what's going to be the best condition to get them there. So if you have that severe, this time of year, we have those severe thunderstorms coming through. When we have a severe thunderstorm, the helicopters are not going to be coming in. Mm. So now we're transporting by ground and you have to figure out, do you transport that hour, hour and a half by ground, or do you get to that closest trauma center, let them maintain the stabilization, and then when conditions allow for best transfer of care, do they do that? Mm. You know, so you start thinking about all of those different scenarios that yeah. come into both. All of those different scenarios. It could be a beautiful day, but yet, you know, all the closest helicopters are already occupied on other events or other incidents. So you're still making those decisions of which way to go. You know, as you're transporting somebody and as you think about a spinal cord injury and not doing, you know, where the harm is, you know, we're transporting in trucks, you know, either a pickup truck chassis or a medium-duty truck chassis with, you know, an air ride suspension that'll cushion the ride so much, but it's still a truck going up and down the road. And as you look at any of our infrastructure, riding around the city of Baltimore or anywhere else, it's be a bumpy ride. 
you're driving an emergency vehicle, reacting to those that are out on the road. And I've had everybody do everything from try to race you to stop short, to back up into me, to you name it, it will occur in trying to get somebody to the hospital. It's um, a challenge at best. Then, and you're still providing care. Right. The heroes uh, are also the drivers navigating yeah. all those potential pitfalls as well. Well, and the part you know, that goes with this is not only do we have the patient to deal with, but we also have to make sure that part of our responsibility is managing the family. We have to manage any other potential bystanders. We also have to make sure that somebody goes back and touches base with those lifeguards in that case to make sure they're doing well. You know, that somebody we're looking out for their health as well because that becomes part of that overall scene and that overall incident. So then as you're, you know, as you're an incident manager, you're making sure that you're looking at that whole scene while somebody's taking care of the immediate patient here. Somebody has to make sure they're taking care of mom or dad or the wife or the children that have to now be driven to the hospital or gain access to make sure that they're safe and that they're not just going to be trying to chase that ambulance as fast as they can up the road, that they get there safely so they can take care of, you know, be available for that long haul. Can you walk us through that on the scene itself and then after that? So part of the scene itself is trying to make sure that one, you're taking care of that immediate need. You're also monitoring everybody's safety to make sure that, you know, from an incident command perspective, you're managing both the patient and the rest of the scene. So is anybody else coming in on the scene? Can anybody else be getting hurt right now? Is everybody properly protected for what's going on? And then you're trying to manage any family or close friends or close relatives or somebody that's on the scene there that might be with this person. We try to figure out, can we use a utility vehicle or something else, or police are going, can they bring family out? Is there somebody that, a neighbor or somebody else that could drive the patient's relative to the hospital to assist? And all of that, are those are questions being asked at the scene by one of yeah. the paramedics or one of the EMS workers? Yep. Somebody in the background trying to make sure we're covering and taking care of everybody. You're trying to make sure that you're coordinating, that you've got you know, that patient taken care of, usually on a scene where you have something like lifeguards having to provide care, you know, we try to make sure that we touch base with them of that they're doing okay. Because okay? we know that that's a traumatic moment for them because more often than not, they're going through a day and they might have to help somebody swim back in. But generally, they're spending time standing by. You know, they're that ounce of prevention. They're that watch. How is the family contacted? Um, if there's nobody there right away and nobody that we can find and assuming the person is, if the person is conscious, we'll ask them who we can call. But if the person is unconscious, then we're relying on any information we can gather. So that information might be getting a home address off of a driver's license. And then we're reaching out to resources to go by that house and see if we can contact somebody, see if there's anybody home. And it could be that in somebody's phone, they have those in case of emergency contacts and that if you're able to, if any of those are on there, you know, can be opened up from their phone to be able to get to, you know, then you try to do that reach out. And it's a very difficult call very when you're difficult. calling to reach somebody. And you're also trying to do everything you can to make sure that the person is who, you know, they think they are. You, you know, you don't, don't want to be giving out information just to anybody. And then now if you're devastating, you're providing 
what could be devastating news or bad news that you know you're then having to manage now that person's response it is very difficult and you know when we come into somebody's home to take their loved one to the hospital and they're in critical condition you're still dealing with that family that was there in the house That's and right. you're still trying to manage whether it's the kids the grown-ups the whatever relatives are there that situation and that you know they're making sure they're this your loved one is getting to the right location for the best possible care yes that's so prickly and ticklish and sensitive and i'm drawn to your comment that you don't want to provide false hope what is the resistance to providing false hope or to providing hope with the concern that it might be false you want to provide that everything that can be done is being done and that all of the right resources and care is being provided but if i said to you if somebody you knew was in cardiac arrest and i'm in your living room forming cpr and we're transporting out and i said to you hey it's going to be okay that's going to lead you to believe that we're going to get them back we're going to revive them when you get to that er possibly that you're going to have somebody sitting there talking to you as opposed to the possibility then of getting to the ER and somebody has now passed away. Mm. Those efforts have stopped. So more, so more the languaging of like, everything's going to be okay, as opposed to having training around the types of languaging, like this is what's happening. Many people can recover from this and some people have a really difficult time. We're going to do the best we can. And I'm giving it with some humility about the two yep. different paths that could happen might be a, a way where you don't squash hope, uh, but it doesn't become false hope. Because uh-huh. there's going to be an emotional response mm. that's going to come out. Indeed. And, you know, those emotional responses we've heard, you know, when we're at the hospital, because, you know, we'll get to the hospital and transport. So we're still going to be there for probably... If we're involved in still providing care in the ER, to then us getting ready for the next call. So getting our equipment cleaned up and ready for the next response, we're still there in that ER. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, their pain, their anguish, their heartache. Sometimes you're experiencing their joy in those moments. You know, that's part of the overall uh, wear and tear. And it used to be the that mindset was, you know, just say, well, everything's going to be okay and go about it. But that really wasn't providing a, a fair evaluation for that family member, mm-hmm. you know, and so you wanted to at least set a right balance a moment and also make sure you're providing care for them and that somebody's looking out that they're going to get to the hospital safely. Right, right, with what could happen to them. And I'm also just thinking these EMS workers, you know, remaining on the scene cleaning up their equipment, getting ready for the next call, getting slammed again, you know, just right into another high adrenaline situation and how it is that they are or can be cared for. You referenced earlier a critical incident stress management program that was, I believe, aimed at like bystanders and other people who may have been involved. It was aimed at us first. Oh, it is. Oh, good, good. Yeah, so it was aimed at us first. Mm -hmm. And it was really set um, Good. And I was very happy during my career to see the evolution of providing head and mental health care for providers. It's not easy in the profession 
to accept that help or your willingness to open up and those things, because a lot of that culture was, well, that was a one call. You pick your bootstraps up and you get ready for the next one, you know, and that's just part of the job and you keep going in those things. And it led to a lot of problems for a lot of people with long-term behavioral health issues, with substance abuse and those things. And we had a high rate of suicide. For MS workers. Yeah. High rate of, high rate of suicide, high rate of divorce, high rate of substance abuse. You know, there's just a lot of risk factors that are very easy to check off. And so there's a lot of recognition to be put into having behavioral health specialists available, be having trained, you know, peer counselors available so that you've got people that are available to people 24 seven. And we set up a whole behavioral health program with three clinical psychologists just to be able to provide care on top of field trained peer counselors to be able to assist so that they can be called, you know, 24 seven, they were available. They were available privately. If we need to take a whole station down because of an incident, we would shut a station down, get the peer counselors in, provide response from everywhere else to make sure we're providing that coverage just to take care of that first. Mm-hmm. And then we would make that determination whether those people were able to stay on duty for the rest of the shift. More often than not, they did. And we actually found that that was better. Mm-hmm and just sending people home because there was that old quick response as was, well, we're just going to send, you know, Rich home to the dead. Well, now Rich is at home. Nobody's looking after Rich. Systems have really improved to be able to... Not, not to mention the irony of, of isolating, you know, the very yeah. person whom you, you think, um, you know, you need to remove for their best interest and for their well-being, but indeed it's the antithesis of what is intended. Yeah, so we've really evolved as a system to make sure that we're taking care of everybody, not only for the short term, but the long term. Hear this um, this shift, too, from having what might be like an EAP, an employee assistance program with a lot of mental health counseling. But, you know, the, the rough and tough guys and women who are entering this profession might not take advantage of services like that. So instead, the services are coming to you. You know, we're going to shut down this whole unit for a while and everybody is going to have someone to talk with and get some counseling. We're enormously proactive about it in that regard. And I found when we put those resources in place, um, they were busy. Yeah. Interesting. The resources were booked out. So of course there was becoming more and more willingness to accept that help. Yes. Beautiful. It's um, the idea of, of taking, you know, the wounded healer, and having to, to take care of, of oneself because I'm also just thinking about how it is that in the moment the EMS worker is called upon to take care of the injured or their family as we've been discussing and the methods that they might use and how it is that those methods might be used. As we're showing up on the scene, we're already coming in behind an April. Yeah, some damage has already occurred. Some level of condition has generally gotten worse. It may have gotten a little bit better or stabilized, but you know your time is still ticking, and then you still got to then listen and assess and start making your decisions of what's going to be that best level of care. What level of care are we going to do on the scene? What level of care are we going to do en route? Are we going to be transporting? Is somebody else going to be transporting? And then what's our transport time? You know, and then time then getting into the ER. And then depending on how the ERs are these days, the ERs are full. 
So you might be waiting at the ER for a half an hour or 40 minutes. And until that nurse or that physician at the hospital accepts your patient, you're still providing that care. So you might be standing in the hospital, but you're still the care provider at that moment until you transition to that hospital accepts your patient. But I'm also wondering about the experience that has been explained to me by other EMS workers that they arrive on the scene. It's oftentimes chaotic. They do their job. They're stabilizing and getting the patient to the nearest best place for them. And then they have no idea what happens to a patient after that. Is that, is that true? What's that like? So in our case, we work 24 hour shifts. So I would work on a Monday and then wouldn't go back to work until Thursday. And so on a given day, you could run anywhere between 10 and 20 calls and assume you transport, you know, anywhere between eight and 16 of them. Wow. You know, wow. you're going to quickly lose track of a lot of patients and you're still, you're moving and continuing to do that. There are those that will always stand out with you. It's like, you're really curious of, there was something unique about it. There was a personal connection or there was something that was, you know, it was a pretty rough call and you want to know if that person's still alive. There are also times and, you know, where you've had that incident, you've been able to have a patient delivered that may be in still alive, but really is it's biding time or it's not a high quality of life. You know, and those are some of the harder ones to deal with where you know that, you know, you made a difference, but that difference did not lead to a better outcome or a better quality of life. Those are, that's difficult times. Mm -hmm. You know, when you transport that patient and they end up in a very long-term coma or something, you know, and that they never come out of. You know, you know, you made that, you did everything right. You did everything you were supposed to do. But, you know, that outcome was part of somebody else's plan. Uh, you know, it's not always easy to realize that somebody should be living that way. I think about how so many EMS workers might be impacted by trauma in a way that they themselves suffer secondary trauma. Again, that goes back to that behavioral piece of having this, you know, something there to take care of your people and yeah. take care of your workers and those things and making sure they know where the resources are and that they have the confidence and trust that those resources are not only going to take care of them, but are also going to respect that privacy and having that confidence to go and that organizationally, there's no penalty for participating in it. Yes. But that's seen as something good, not something bad. Bigger system than most people realize and those care needs go beyond just that person in that moment. And our focus and the, web of connection with your work as the assistant chief of the fire department for so many years and EMS work and paramedic work and our focus as conflict interveners in this crisis period and what it is that we'll, we will see in the future as we continue to build that out. Do you want to say anything about that or things that you might envision we will include in our resource library? Well, I think there 
making sure that everybody has the right understanding of how to evaluate, how to treat, and how to care for, understanding what the implications are of making sure that you're doing the best that you can and that you're not doing any further harm. That we're also looking at that whole patient that you're listening, you're understanding what's happening, and that you're getting them to the right resource and how critical it is to get to that right resource. So identifying the right resource and then getting them is going to be key. And then making sure for the long term, how are you able to respond to that next call and that next event? And and perhaps as well from what you said earlier in the spinal cord injury context, you know, what to say, what not to say. Mm-hmm. Um, giving some good good language for that. And you know, who knows? We might be able to put together trainings and deploy teams that can go to the groups, uh, whether they were lifeguards or whether they were other EMS workers, where there has been a catastrophic spinal cord injury to service them over those 30 days after an injury. Yeah, but we, you know, we need them and we need them to stay doing what they're doing. Exactly. To be able exactly. to serve. That's exactly right. That's the most important part. That is the most important part. I applaud you for everything that you've done because to have an event like this occur and to have it with Archer and to be so close there and to selflessly want to educate and help others and prepare others to be able to handle such an event is truly incredible. You know, I think about everything you've done, the words you say, how you manage the family, how you manage yourself and what you're trying to do to take this and allow others to both learn from, experience, grow from, and be prepared. It's just amazing. So thank you for everything you're doing with this as well, because it takes a very special person to do that. So thank you. You can never underestimate what a small group of committed citizens can do to change the world. And you're one of those committed citizens. So I thank you. It's been a real joy talking with you, Rich. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Rich, for the acknowledgement of the toll that these first responder challenges can take on first responders and EMTs, whom we all rely upon in our communities. It's essential for us all to acknowledge this impact for collective trauma healing, providing adequate support resources for debriefing and counseling, and fostering a culture of openness and understanding are other essential steps for responding to the mental health wear and tear of first responders and their physical and spiritual well-being. As a society, it's critical to remember that the heroes who save lives also need life-saving interventions too for themselves, from the traumas they face and the emotional burdens they carry as a result of being on the front line. Recognizing their struggles and acknowledging the care they deserve is a first step in helping these brave individuals navigate their path to healing so they can continue their important work from a supportive, relational grounded stand. As a postscript to our interview today, I wanted to share with you some further relational views on trauma and trauma healing for you to consider. I have asked many medical doctors and nurses, as well as EMTs and first responders, 
about their definition of trauma. And a common and understandable response is a severe bodily injury. Indeed, this is one version of trauma. But as we know from this Trauma Healing Learning series, trauma is not just a severe bodily injury, nor is trauma just an event. Trauma may begin with a severe injury or a catastrophic event, but trauma does not end when that injury has been attended to and stabilized. The trauma event sets off a flood of chemicals in the brain, causing an experience of heightened overwhelm that can last days, months, and even a lifetime after the injury without trauma healing interventions. No human person can escape or bypass the trauma experience, but we can work towards integration of the experience to loosen its long-term grip in our lives and allow us to live freely again. As a brief overview, the trauma experience for any human can manifest in a number of ways, but all responses are part of the primary trauma responses of feeling numb or nothing at all and an experience of hyper-alertness or hypervigilance. This trauma experience to the body is thus not only to the body, but in and throughout the body. We can have racing thoughts and emotional flooding. We can feel empty or nothing at all. We can freeze or collapse or shut down. Or we can be on edge and in warrior mode, overreactive and tunnel visioned. We might say the trauma experience is all-encompassing of our thoughts, our emotions, and our physical responses, as if we are overtaken. We might say the trauma experience is a mind, body, and spiritual experience. We also know the experience of trauma can be very subtle over time, if not acknowledged and integrated. The experience can get stuck in the cellular memory of our bodies. Indeed, for all mental and emotional traumatic events, the experience of the trauma resides in the body and continues to reside in the body, in our tissues, in our organs, over time, if not loosened, unfrozen, and attended to in relational compassionate ways, which invite trauma healing. The experience of trauma when we shut down or live in a hypervigilant state is a natural human phenomenon. The responses are highly intelligent responses of the brain trying to keep us alive. And the responses often do keep us alive or allow us to stay alive so we can keep those we love or care about alive. Without an understanding of the trauma experience, both responses, however, can often be misunderstood as problematic, misjudged, 
as abnormal, mischaracterized as weak, or misdiagnosed as illness. Many professionals working in high-stress trauma situations are regularly observing and witnessing trauma situations, can also be subject to the same trauma experience as a sort of secondary trauma experience and suffer the same lingering impacts of unacknowledged, unintegrated trauma. In these situations, the trauma responses can often be dismissed or overlooked or chalked up as just part of the job. For all of us, we want to be attentive to the reality of the normal experience of trauma and also bring an awareness that that normal response of our brains in a traumatic situation is not a normal healthy response for daily living and long-term well-being. If we are still living with lingering patterns of old trauma, it's okay. We can view that as a new invitation to look again or to look back again at our lives or to work with someone who can assist us with loosening what has us in the old clutch again, especially when it surprises us from time to time. Trauma healing is not usually a linear process, nor can we think our way to trauma healing. We must feel our way through trauma, both emotionally and somatically, as we loosen again and again in our minds, our emotions, and our bodies the lingering grip of loss, separation, and trauma in our lives until we are restored to a sense of ease, free again to live fully. And this can take years, and it cycles as do the seasons, but it is well worth the journey for ourselves, for others in our lives, and for society at large. As we close remembering EMTs and first responders, you might consider the various groups or systems you are part of or rely upon and their response to physical emergencies and to trauma. Is there an opportunity for you to bring an understanding to them of the fuller human experience of trauma? To bring an understanding of the relational compassion we can bring to our own and others' trauma experiences. Might you be a voice to raise awareness of the essential need for self-care for those who dedicate their careers and lives to helping others in trauma and crisis? Might you do something relational for yourself to acknowledge where old, unresolved trauma is lingering in your life, in your thought patterns from time to time, in your emotional flooding out of the blue, or in your body of chronic aches and pains. You might be shut down to deep grief or numb to the joy of life and find someone to share that with, someone who will not judge you but who will support you, who understands trauma as you take the next step in your trauma healing 
We are all in this work together. Thank you for listening. Please help us spread this healing resource far and wide. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with a friend who might gain something. And please, if you so choose, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast directly by becoming a patron at Patreon. All those links are in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life changes in the blink of an eye. Sending love. Hope for everything. Begin again. Podcasts.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.